Welcome to Discover Library and Archives Canada. Your history, your documentary heritage. I'm your host, Geneviève Morin. Join us as we showcase treasures from our vaults, guide you through our many services, and introduce you to the people who acquire, safeguard, and make known Canada's documentary heritage. The 1967 Universal and International Exhibition, better known as Expo 67, was the highlight of Canada's centennial celebrations. It was held in Montreal from April to October 1967, and it was considered the most successful World's Fair of the 20th century. Expo 67 left a mark on the city of Montreal, the province of Quebec, and Canada as a whole, giving citizens a sense of pride in shared achievement and in the international recognition of the event's success. CBC News Roundup. In Paris today, an announcement made it official. Montreal will be the site of the World's Fair in 1967. For that story, to Paris and Stanley Burke. Expo. Expo. Library and Archives Canada has held the majority of the Expo 67 records for the past 40 years. There are architectural drawings, photographs, textual and promotional material, and much more. For the past few years, LAC has been working hard to make these items available to the public and to preserve them for future generations. This has been no easy task. Margaret Dixon, Senior Project Archivist at LAC, will talk to us about the legacy of Expo and the work that has gone into archiving these documents. Hey friends, hey friends, come on over, how would you like to see what open space Canadian songwriter and composer Stéphane Venn composed Expo 67's theme song, Hey Friend, Say Friend. Out of over 2,200 songs submitted in an international competition, his composition was the one chosen. The song is sung by Michel Richard. Hi, Margaret. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Genevieve. It's so good to be here. Let's start off broad, and I'm going to ask you to tell us what was Expo 67? Well, because you know I was there. <laughs> <laughs> it was, well, many people have described it differently, but I think, you know, when they say it was the place to be, it certainly was the place to be. I mean, it was um, not just a crowning achievement for Canada, but also for the city of Montreal and the province of Quebec. I mean, three levels of government worked together to pull this off in a situation where Canada didn't have much time to go through the planning and the construction and the implementation, and they did it. So, you know, to have this accomplishment and then to have the world at your doorstep, especially for a country who, and a province, that wouldn't necessarily be aware of the of the international scene to have this at your doorstep was amazing and everybody wanted to be there and so when you were there there was this, an excitement you know you could just you didn't even have to go into the pavilions you just walked around you saw you know all the elements of design and the just the feeling and the flair it was it was the place to be 
So what would typically be shown at an exhibition? Well, typically, it's interesting because um, exhibitions historically have been um, trade fairs where countries have shown their wares and have promoted their economy and and used it as a as a place to sell themselves, right? Uh, in the years um, previous to Expo, they started to change. And um, there was a concerted effort, I think, on the on the planners of Expo 67 to make it into more of a socially conscious kind of venue and to man and his environment, man and his world, and how does uh, man view society and and how do we use technology and use uh, the different resources that are available to us to solve society's ills. And can we do this peacefully together? You know, so the whole idea of the world coming together and and looking at, you know, this um, theme and trying to work together and maybe we could achieve peace. And especially during a period where we're talking still about the Cold War. And, you know, you have Russia and you have the U.S., uh, the USA, both prominently um, having pavilions and participation at Expo. But, you know, there is still a Cold War going on. But we can still somewhat be together and we can maybe show our different approaches or our different perspectives on society and how we might approach um, solving problems. You mentioned that it was based originally in, on, on the intent of of, of promoting countries and sort of in the spirit of a trade fair. But I think that Expo still had a bit of that element to it where every pavilion, every country had a pavilion to showcase its technological advances, its its artistic prowess. It's It was the best of every country. Oh, absolutely. And yes, I don't think you can, you can certainly say that Expo didn't have that inherit some of those elements. I think the boundaries were being pushed beyond that. And in this case, it was, what is the impact of design on our life? What is the quality of our life? How can our life be better? And how can we do that through design and innovation? And I think, you know, you had man and his health, man and his world, man in the ocean, man in the environment. These were part of the themes of man and his world. And so there were elements, of course, um, in the theme pavilions, but some of those other elements of innovation and, and you know, pushing the cultural uh, expressions were also evident, especially in the films and in um, the products. I mean, even the construction of the pavilions, using different uh, construction methods and materials in a, in a different way. And everything was thoughtful in terms of design and a cohesion, in a sense, a cohesion of design, but yet also different in the sense of let's push all the boundaries out. So you're mentioning pavilions. So there were specific pavilions for countries, but there were also thematic pavilions? We had three different kinds of pavilions. At Expo, Um, there there were three different types of pavilions, the national pavilions, of which there were over 60. And these included all the participating countries, plus some provinces and American states. There were also the privately sponsored pavilions, which included companies like Air Canada, Bell, Kodak, Canadian National Railway, and Alcan. Then we had the theme pavilions, with examples like Man the Explorer, Man the Producer, and Man the Provider. Also, there was the amusement park La Ronde, plus Habitat 67, a novel construction project related to man's housing needs. I think that when you, if you, if you looked at it and tried to peel back the layers of what was Expo, obviously the pavilions are, and the specific site areas come to mind. But even walking there, I mean, you had, um, you know, all your design elements of the furniture of the one of the most architecturally significant um, pieces, if you want to look at it as a piece, um, or innovative elements um, of Expo was the telephone booths because of the use of plastic, you know, and in being in a dome situation. So, you know, the garbage cans, the signage, the signage of the, you know, the men's and women's washrooms, that was um, designed for Expo. You know, so that international signage, which we still take for granted, that originated there. 
so you had your mono your monorail and you had you know so your pathways and um, the whole experience and you had three islands that had been augmented or or created um, to take the to um, as the basis for the construction for the site. One of those islands built for Expo was Ile Notre Dame. Created in only 10 months, it used some of the 15 million tons of rock from the construction of the Montreal metro system. So, I mean, it was, um, there was much more than just the buildings um, or the entertainment. It was just that this magnificent project, which was very ambitious, you know, it all came together. After Expo ended in October 1967, the site and almost all the pavilions remained. This became the exhibition called Man in His World. It was open during the summer months, right up until 1984, when it was closed permanently. And then there were dignitaries. People wanted to come and visit. And you had uh, Princess Grace Kelly. You had, you know, Jackie Kennedy. You had, um, you know, Queen Elizabeth and and her her husband. <laughs> and you had... Um, Ed Sullivan came Ed in? Ed Sullivan did a couple of shows. A bunch of American actors came. Absolutely, yes. And you had iconic um, entertainers that, that came. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was um, all that excitement was not just the uh, infrastructure, but the p- fact that people came and they intermixed and they, they got to share their um, experiences. Margaret was right when she said that in 1967, Expo was the place to be. That summer, many notable entertainers performed there. Singers and bands of note included Dave Brubeck, Bing Crosby, The Grateful Dead, Sarah Vaughan, and Luciano Pavarotti. And then you had the hostesses. And, uh, you know, you had these beautiful women who were very intelligent, who were guiding you through the site and guiding you through the pavilions and promoting um, Expo. They were, they went to Macy's, they went abroad, they went, they sold. They were a very big part of the promotional part. They weren't just the people handing out pamphlets at Expo. Uh, They were being ambassadors for Expo itself. And of course, they reflected the fashion of the time. And you know, because we, we saw it ourselves, we saw the, you know, some of the, um, the advertisements for hostesses and hosts, but emphasis being on the hostesses. We also saw drawings and pictures of their uniforms. And we also heard about the controversy about the Mary Quant uh, miniskirt at the UK Pavilion and how once that was seen, everybody raised their skirts. All the hostesses raised their skirts. They went from the knee to halfway up the leg. Well, not quite halfway up the <laughs> leg. I would say maybe from the knee to maybe two or three inches up the leg. <laughs> so the Mary Quant controversy that Margaret mentions goes like this. The hostesses at the UK pavilion were wearing their red, white, and blue skirts, created by Welsh fashion designer and inventor of the mini skirt, Mary Quant. They were short. Apparently, hostesses from other pavilions, not wanting to be left out, started raising their skirts as well. Throughout this episode, LEC employees will be sharing some of their personal experiences at Expo 67. First up, librarian and archivist of Canada, Guy Bertiaume. Guy Bertiaume, bibliothécaire et archiviste du Canada. Guy Bertiaume, librarian and archivist of Canada. I was 16 years old during Expo. First of all, for me, Expo is certainly a physical place, but it's primarily an emotional place. It's an intellectual place. It's a place where I experienced what it was like to be a 16-year-old boy in 1967. So I have memories of my emotions that are more specific than what I actually saw there. I think I was there every day that summer, since I was too young to have a summer job. And in the end, it's there that I became, I don't know if it was a young adult or an old teenager, but in any case, that's where I was introduced to an extraordinary world. Of course, that was because of all the pavilions, but it was also an introduction to counterculture. Remember that at that time, Robert Charlebois was singing almost every week at the youth pavilion, with only an acoustic guitar before he went electric. 
It was a time when Claude Dubois was also singing there almost every week, so there was such an incredible buzz. Not only because it was Expo, but also because it was a time when all around the world people were open to all kinds of new realities. All the art movements experienced an unparalleled explosion at that time, and that moment will never come back because it was a time of innocence, of means. There was a lot of money to do those things. Imagine making an island right in the middle of the St. Lawrence River. Today, that would be completely impossible for an environmental standpoint, though it would still be possible with all our means and resources. But that was a time when everything was possible. People didn't doubt themselves. There was full employment because women weren't on the job market. We won't go back to that society, and we won't try to either. But no one doubted the future. No one. At 16, I never doubted that I would find a job. I never had that kind of hesitation. It was really a time that we will never get back. And from a personal standpoint, being 16 again, that's another moment that no one gets back. For me, it was like the perfect combination. You had to be 16 in 67, and I was 16. So it was the perfect combination to be happy and have a fabulous summer. Did you find that Montreal changed after Expo 67? Did it change Quebec and Canada as well? As far as I can tell, it was an extraordinary turning point for Montreal and Quebec, a radical one, because they were suddenly completely open to all the cultures of the world. Remember that the Soviet Union and the United States were both there at the same time. We were open to all those realities. Quebec society was still, of course, we had experienced the quiet revolution, but it was still very shy in terms of opening up to the world even as far as cuisine was concerned. Montreal was not the same after Expo. Chefs came, chefs stayed. We were introduced to new cuisines, like Swiss cuisine, the cuisine of African countries, and, of course, Asian cuisine. So we went from having a few Chinese restaurants, which were about as exotic as it got, and then three or four Dad Giovanni's, and afterwards, Montreal became a fine dining capital, in that sense, but also in the sense of opening up to the world. It's not unique to my generation, but my parents' generation, and as far back as our grandparents, they had a fabulous introduction to other peoples. They could see people from Cuba, <laughs> which was impossible at the time. See people from India, see people from Thailand. It's like I said, opening up to the world to a degree that we have never surpassed, and it was really like a fabulous breath of fresh air, at least in the region that I know. For Canada as a whole, I can't tell you. I also felt this a bit when Expo was in Vancouver, but I don't really know how people felt in 67 in the rest of Canada. When a young man of 16 passes through the turnstiles, what's his first impression? At the time, my first impression was that I was seeing a great success come together. It was exactly the same thing for the Olympics in 76. Up to the day before the opening, people were saying, it won't be ready, it will never end, there are strikes, there is construction, there are problems with construction sites. So being able to go on the first day and see that it was working and that there were literally thousands of people pouring into the site, I was really shocked. I was surprised at the success. And I don't think even the expo promoters had dreamt of such a success. I don't remember if there was double or triple the expected turnout, but it was like that. A lot of people, a lot of happy people. There was no aggressiveness. On the contrary, people got along well in the lines. It should be said that that age of innocence can't be recreated today. It was really, I'm telling you, today we can't imagine that type of atmosphere. We'll never get that moment back. Any other lasting memories? Although there was so much, I would say there was something that later became ordinary. But at the time, it was completely new for me anyway, and for my friends and my group of friends. It was going to the Indian Pavilion to see the first Indian musicians. 
Sure, the Beatles had been there briefly a few years earlier, but for us, this was the first time we had experienced Indian music firsthand with the sitar, tabla, etc. And those concerts that lasted for hours and hours and hours, the same piece of music because it was classical music, but also improvised. So yes, seeing it with my own eyes, participating in it in person for the first time, that was really something special. Now, time to delve into the Expo records here at LAC. But first, it's time for... Library and Archives Canada's Word of the Day. Today's word is fond. Everyone has had a collection. A collection of stamps, a collection of comics, or maybe even a collection of rocks. But what is this talk about a fond? A fond, spelled F-O-N-D-S, is not unlike a collection in the sense that both consist of accumulations of documents. The difference between them lies in how they were accumulated. Collections are accumulated or intentionally grouped because they have something in common, a common owner, theme, or a common type of object, like stamps. A faux, on the other hand, is accumulated naturally, over the course of one's life or career, without specific intent on the owner's or creator's part. For example, an author's faux may contain family photographs, as well as correspondence with family and loved ones. It may also contain correspondence with publishing houses, fellow authors, and literary agents, as well as photographs of book launches and award ceremonies. All this material makes up the author's phone. It was created in the normal course of their personal life or career as an author. This same author could have had a personal stamp collection, completely unrelated to the normal course of their family life and career. If they were to donate that to LAC, it would make up a collection. listening to the Expo 67 two-step. This song was written and performed by Canadian folk music icon Don Messer. Can you tell us about the Expo 67 font at Library and Archives Canada? Yes, I, I think that, you know, when I, when I look at um, the collection that we have at at Library and Archives Canada, the um, it is actually the the Canadian World Exhibition Corporation, you know, and we have their records, um, the official records of that corporation, and really it it um, documents the initial the initial uh, planning, the um, construction, the design, the implementation, the day-to-day operations, everything that went into making Expo happen and from beginning to end. So we have that official corporate record, which is a very different kind of record than, you know, what people might remember themselves. Um, And so in documenting, we have the minutes of the executive. Um, We have various reports, various studies. We have promotional materials. We have a considerable amount of uh, textual materials, I would say, um, about, um, let me see, about um, at least 124 meters of records, um, and not most of which are accessible, but we're still working on accessibility issues. Um, We have cartographic, um, the architectural drawings, Um, Over 40,000 of those drawings. We have photographs, again, a considerable amount of black and white and color photographs, posters. um, There is some audiovisual. So we have, you know, um, a fairly extensive collection of materials documenting the the operations, the beginning, the initiation, and the operations of of the corporation that brought Expo into being. How do we come to acquire this material? Well, the um, corporation itself was enacted um, through federal legislation, and it was a the corporation was based on a tripartite agreement between the federal government, the province of Quebec, and the city of Montreal. And the corporation did um, 
report through Parliament on an annual basis um, to the Minister of Trade and Commerce. These were, you know, ultimately government records. And we're Library and Archives Canada. We have the documentary heritage for Canada that includes not just private sources, but records of the government of Canada. So it falls well within our mandate that we should have these records. Why does Library and Archives Canada go through the trouble of archiving these expo documents? Well, why would they go through the trouble of archiving any archival or historic documents? I mean, this is part of our history. This is part, it's a, it illustrates the cultural and the social and just the dynamic time. And why wouldn't we want to document that? But it is a massive job. You were mentioning 40,000 architectural records. Yeah, and I think this is really interesting because when you look at it from a Government of Canada perspective, it's not a lot. And it was, in, but it is a lot. Um, recently talking to someone from the archives um, of Ontario, and they were saying, well, when you say what your architectural drawings are for this one font, that's what we have in our entire, you know, collection, you know, uh, going across all of their, you know, font. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, that's just small compared to what we might have in public works or transport or any of the other uh, departments, um, Enercan or, you know, where that is part of, you know, drawings or architectural drawings are part of their, of what they create and what they do. So, you know, it's, it is unique in the sense that there's such a diversity of uh, specialized media materials. But in terms of the amount, it's not big in relation to what other kinds of um, representations we have in our collection. You may have just heard Margaret mention specialized media. This is the term that LAC uses in referencing all archives that are non-textual. This includes photographs, art, cartography, architectural records, audiovisual material, stamps, and other items such as postcards, political buttons, and pins. Storage is certainly an issue for LAC. We asked Margaret how these documents in the Expo font are kept safe and secure. Oh, well, <laughs> that's interesting. How do we store it? Well, I think you should go back a step. And it's not just a question, how do we store it? How do we handle the documents? Because they might come to us in very different ways and in less than optimal ways. So, for example, architectural drawings can be rolled up very tightly into rolls. Well, they have to be relaxed. So we have to have a space where we can relax these and do it gently so that we're not harming the documents. Can you explain what relax means? Unrolling them and flattening them in a way that is not going to crease them or tear them um, or crack them as the case may be. And it may mean that we gently unroll it or it may mean that we call upon our preservation um, colleagues to um, induce or to facilitate the relaxing with maybe they have other methods that, that we don't have. They're the specialist. And we have to know when to call them in to, to be able to help us with that preservation. So there's more than just storing. There's, you know, it's the handling. And then they have to be housed in, in, a, in a specific kind of container, a folder, or specifically um, made box or um, acid-free box or container. When items in the font are ready for storage, they are brought to LAC's main storage facility, the Preservation Centre, in Gatineau, Quebec. The state-of-the-art facility, built in 1997, provides collection storage areas with optimal environmental conditions. It also houses laboratories for preservation activities. There will be a whole episode of our podcast devoted to the Gatineau Preservation Center coming out in the fall. Stay tuned. That's where is the, really the premium uh, storage facility for us. And all of the architectural drawings that we have been uh, refoldering into the larger oversized folders, they're all going to be in um, the Gatineau Preservation Center in specially designed drawers and um, store and supported in, in a way in which their long-term uh, longevity is going to be ensured. We also have photos. We have uh, black and white photos, but we also have had um, color slides and photos. And they 
require a special kind of um, environment in, in order to exist. And they happen to have a cold storage facility within the Gatineau Preservation Center. And it's interesting because um, research demand has really pushed us and challenged us in terms of making this collection more accessible. And for example, with the color um, photographs, they're currently in a cold storage facility. And At when, minus 18 Celsius. Oh, very cold. Absolutely. And, and when you get the tour of Gatineau Preservation Center and they take you into that vault, they, you put the, the winter jackets on, right? And we all laugh, but it's for a good reason because it, it helps to protect um, the emulsion of these, of these photographs. So when a, um, a researcher wants to look at these photographs, they put in a request from reference and then it goes, the photographs are taken out and gradually they're acclimatized to a normal everyday environment. Um, and then the researcher can look at it. So it's not a question of you order something and it's going to come to you in five minutes or half an hour or a day. It's going to take a couple of days in order for the acclimatization. So with this, we had a preservation concern that, you know, you shouldn't be taking these photos back and forth all the time because that isn't really good for them. Um, they should be in the vault or they should not be in the vault and, and we need to keep them in the vault. So we were able to do a, um, a, a digitize a fair amount of them. So now people don't need to order some of those photos. They can go into, you know, do a search through our website and they can click on the digital image or go into the database and query for the image, and voila, they have these beautiful photographs. The photos in the Expo 67 phone consist of around 15,000 color slides and over 30,000 black and white negatives. At this point, over 4,000 digital images are online and searchable on our website. Also, don't forget our Flickr gallery dedicated to this episode, where we've chosen about 70 amazing images to showcase. To access the Flickr page, look on the show notes on iTunes or head over to the podcast page on LAC's website. And we had um, a stakeholder come to us and uh, want to use some photographs, new fresh materials for their documentary. And that enabled us to be able to um, have the uh, resources to be able to um, digitize some of these. So researcher demand has been really important. Um, in terms of helping us to make our collections more accessible, not just for the expo records, but also for, for other um, areas. Military, for example, is very popular. Um, and other records that we have that um, Canadians are interested in. That interest, we respond to it. We want people to um, be able to access the, the documentation that they seeing that they find important and relevant to their their own lives and in the example of these photos you know we have these um this beautiful facility the Gatineau Preservation Center and we're able to care for these photos but we also have to balance the preservation needs against the access needs so digitization comes to the rescue it can be a good alternative yes now Time for another Expo 67 memory with an LAC employee. Bonjour, je suis Normand Charbonneau. En 1967, j'avais 11 ans. Hello, I'm Normand Charbonneau. In 1967, I was 11 years old. Our family lived in Saint-Basile-le-Grand on the south shore of Montreal. And my parents saved for months to buy us Expo passports. It changed my life in many ways. The experience that I had as a young Montrealer, I lived in Saint-Basile-le-Grand, but I was born in Montreal, and I'm a real city boy. No one is more a Montrealer than me. It transformed Montreal profoundly, transformed people in my generation. Those who were lucky enough to have parents who were inspired by Expo, who saved up and forced us to go, because when you're 11, you may be more interested in playing softball than going to Expo every day of the year, all summer long, as I did. I went to Expo every day that summer. At Expo, I discovered languages. I discovered faces that were different from mine, from those of my two sisters and my brother. And I discovered cultures through food. I ate pierogies for the first time at Expo. I ate an anchovy pizza for the first time at Expo. 
I still dislike anchovies. I ate butter chicken for the first time at Expo. I met people in line. For those who weren't there, we stood in line for hours at Expo. We spent half our day lining up to get into the most popular pavilions. Other things that have stayed with me were the whole series of canals, and there were the Floralie on Ile Sainte-Hélène, on Man and His World afterwards. All those canals have become quite beautiful. If you go there in the summer to ride your bike, it's a magnificent place. The Quebec Pavilion, the French Pavilion that became the Casino, all these things changed us, but it was also the contact with others, anyone, everyone who came from everywhere, who made an effort to talk to us in French or in English, with whom we stood in line for hours, discovering cultures, discovering things that profoundly changed the young people who were there, the young 11-year-old boys like me, who let themselves get carried away by the adventure of Expo, because it really was an adventure, man and his world. For me, I had friends at school in the years afterwards whose parents had been hosts or hostesses in the pavilions and then immigrated to Canada. And that profoundly changed the social fabric. We understood other people. We understood that this Gallic village, French Canada, in the northeastern corner of North America, it's part of a world where there are many worlds. The universe is diverse, and there are people like us everywhere, but also nuances. So, Expo, from 67 onwards, and the young Montrealers who grew up, who matured maybe, certainly in age, that has always stayed with us. But we were lucky to have participated in the vision of the creators, the organizers, and our parents who spent time and money so we could travel with them the whole summer of 1967. For those who know Montreal, on the Jack Cartier Bridge, there are two towers in the center, above Ile Saint-Hélène, one that's closer to La Ronde and the other that's closer to the park. We came from the south shore, Saint-Basile-le-Grand. After work, my father would pick us up on the bridge, and it was rush hour. Everyone was behind us, wanting to pass. And some evenings, we waited on the other side. And it was something really, really fascinating. Anyway, it was really fascinating to me at the time. Maybe it won't make you laugh, but it still makes me laugh. It was almost like a relay race at the Olympics. There were several families. There were no cell phones at the time, and we knew that mom or dad would come from Montreal by car, so we positioned ourselves a bit like waiting for the baton from the other runner. And our father, in my case it was papa, he pulled over and stopped, and we moved forward and got in the car as quickly as possible so we could finish crossing the bridge. Today, he'd get stopped by the police, and there'd be a complaint to youth protection services, I'm sure. or the Centennial Song, was written by Canadian orchestra leader and trumpeter Bobby Jimby. Here it is, performed by the Young Canada Singers. The single was the most successful song in Canada in 1967, selling over 270,000 copies. It became the unofficial theme song for Expo 67 and has been recorded by over 30 different musicians. How has the Expo Fond been important to you personally? Well, that's a very good question. You know, I think as an archivist, and I've been an archivist for a few years, that <laughs> you get to pick, oh, you're laughing. You get to pick and choose, you know. You don't always get to do everything you want. It's like a kid in a candy store, right? I love being an archivist, and, and I work with some amazing records. You know, you always find, you find some some gems in your collections. Um, there's 
the records we have, because we have deemed them to be historic, all have value and all all worthy. But it's a question sometimes, how do you choose? And for me, it's being a project. That's being an important aspect of it. It's been another learning experience because of the diversity of the materials in this collection. And the fact I could relate personally to the experience didn't hurt, you know, and it's and to see the 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 absolute joy and amazement of people who once they see some of the records we have are just so enthralled, it's very satisfying to know that that living aspect of our history, people don't always find history to be exciting. They're not all archivists. You know, but when somebody who doesn't have that kind of background all of a sudden can connect with an event or with the records, it's satisfying. Kind of makes our, our day our day's work worthwhile. Yeah. We it's not just for us anymore. No. We realize that it is for Canadians. Here's another LEC employee with an Expo 67 memory. So my name is Elaine Getz and I am an employee of Library and Archives Canada. And I'm uh, here to talk about my experience at Expo. I was six years old at that time and living in a, a radar base in New Brunswick, south of what was then uh, Chatham-Newcastle, which is now Miramichi. And we traveled in a station wagon, a 1966 Pontiac Laurentian, and it was the size of an aircraft carrier because we were six children with one on the way, my parents in the front seat, the four kids in the back, seat and then the two other kids lying down in the back with no seat belts and we traveled all the way to Montreal. We stayed at a campground on the south shore of Montreal that was set up by the military and uh, I remember Expo vividly. Uh, the, the children were allowed to enter for seven days for six dollars and uh, I remember the Canadian Pavilion which to me was like an upside down pyramid while we were there, I saw Bobby Kennedy. I didn't know who he was, but somebody told me he worked for the government. And we actually, I, I was looking in the uh, our uh, library, the, our uh, catalog the other day, and noticed uh, I, the picture came up of Bobby Kennedy with three of his sons on the log ride. They were all wearing suits and ties. I thought that was kind of funny. Um, and I, I remember living, being isolated on a radar base. You didn't see too much of the outside world. So I saw my first hippie at Expo 67. And uh, it was, uh, I have a lot of fond memories of Expo and uh, it was a very exciting time. Elaine, tell us more about that hippie. What stood out? The long hair. We didn't, everybody had buzz cuts on the base and you didn't see, we didn't have a lot of television back then. The television on Saturday nights was uh, Hockey Night in Canada or Don Messer's Jubilee. We had one channel, and it was the CBC, and we um, we didn't get exposed to a lot of what was going on in the outside world. But so I, I saw these these uh, men in with long hair and baggy clothes, and it was very bizarre to me. So I didn't know really what these what was going on, and but it was a, a really good time. Everything about 1967 was so exciting, like the um, the songs that were written for Expo 67. I work in, a, in the reference area at Library and Archives, and people are ordering a lot of material from Expo 67 now. And it's I, I, I see these materials pass by me, and it brings back a lot of memories. And I take a glance at the books that go by in the... Uh, the picture books, and there's so much, and a lot of people are ordering the things to commemorate the 150, and it's pretty exciting, and it's bringing back a lot of memories. Why do you think people are still interested in Expo 67? <laughs> well, um, I guess it depends on who you think is interested in Expo 67. I sure am. Well, then from your generation, what do you get? From Expo 67 because I know that I get certain things because I was there and I know that my brother-in-law gets certain things because he was a teenager in Montreal and he went almost every day to Expo so what he gets out of it is something very different and I think that everybody experienced who was there experienced Expo differently and what this font does for us is it sort of um, helps us to understand the broader context. I mean, it's like 
doing genealogy, right? You have the stories, you have the impressions, but what is really the fact? And what is the context of that experience? That's what Expo does. So you weren't there at Expo, your generation wasn't, but you can discover that experience partially through the documents that are there. You can understand a part of our history that maybe you didn't understand before because the context is there. So I think that when you look at any historic records, the discovery is there's always an excitement when you have a discovery for the first time. So if you're discovering Expo for the first time and you see this comprehensive collection of the day-to-day -day operations of the entity that made it happen, how exciting is that? You're right. It adds a layer. It adds fact to the stories we hear. And I, you were, you were, while you were talking, it, I was just remembering this letter that we found about um, the hostesses requesting modifications to their uniforms. Yes. And that little hat, that little hat that they wore that was specifically designed so people could find them in a crowd. It had three colors on it. So you could find that little hat very quickly and you could find a hostess. But what the designer hadn't kept in mind was that they were in the middle of the St. Lawrence River and it was really windy there. So one of the requests that the hostess made were, we really like the hats, but you got to find a way to keep them on our heads because they keep flying off. And just that, that little tidbit of mm -hmm. human, of humanity added to the document or the photographs of the hostesses with their little beanie hats, just that little bit was just a little, like you say, it's a little fun discovery of, oh, it adds that little extra layer of, of interest to the story of Expo. And it humanizes it yes. for you. Yes. I think what Expo does, and I've seen this happen to a number of people who have worked on it, who didn't have a foreknowledge of Expo, it draws you in. Mm -hmm. History should draw you in. It is who we are. Ça te plaît de tenter l'expérience Je t'en prie, n'attends pas trop C'est le moment, profite de ta chance Viens visiter notre expo Quebec musician Marc Gélina recorded his song Rendez-vous à Montréal for Expo It's on his 1968 album Lorsque le rideau tombe Hello, I'm Michel Pelletier. I'm the manager of Governance, Economy, Environment and Sciences for Library and Archives Canada. I was six years old in 1967. The things that stick with me the most from Expo 67 are the architecture, the design. It's strange because I was young, but I think about my memories a lot. They've come back to me throughout my career, throughout my life, when I'm working. I went into art history because of Expo. It's probably because of Expo that I went into the history of architecture. I study design. I studied urban planning. It was a transcendent moment for a lot of young Montrealers, young Quebecers, who hadn't seen anything like it before. Pavilions that I have remembered my whole life, memories that often come back to me. Pavilions like the German Pavilion by Fry Otto, which was an enormous sail mounted on poles. It was extremely striking. It was so luminous in there, and it was so airy. It was also very hot inside. He hadn't thought of that. A lot of the pavilions, not all the pavilions, but a lot of the pavilions were architecturally important at the time. I didn't have the perspective to understand that then, but over time, afterwards, I came to understand it. I know that when I studied architecture afterwards, when I studied art, there were a lot of works, a lot of references that had components of Expo 67. What were memories of that time and what was imagined later, I'm not sure, but it touched my life. 
and it affected an entire generation. Looking back, I recognize that it probably shaped my tastes. I probably became a historian of modern architecture because when I was six years old, I was touched by the modernity of Expo. Alors bonjour, mon nom est Josiane Polidori. Hello, my name is Josiane Polidori, and I work at Library and Archives Canada in the Literature, Music and Performing Arts Archives. I have very specific memories of Expo 67. I was 10 at the time, and since my family lived in saint Lambert, we were right beside it, and I went there very often with my mother and my little sister Marie-France, who was 7. For me, Expo was a lesson in independence because after going there a few times with my mother, she let me go alone with my sister. We took the bus and then the metro from Longueuil to Ile Saint-Hélène, and then the two of us went to Expo. My most vivid memories are of when I was with my sister. We often went back to the Czechoslovakian pavilion. I know it went often, and it was a favorite pavilion for a lot of people. There were technical elements, now they would probably be more interesting, all the cinema to see and the interactive sites. But at the time, that wasn't what interested me. What I really loved, and I still remember very vividly, is the puppet shows. There were big showcases with puppets made by Iri Trinka, an animator, a director of animated films. Puppets that were maybe almost life-size for children, really beautiful, very poetic. There was the Tree of Tales. There was also a story taken from Shakespeare, I think A Midsummer Night's Dream or something like that. Just magnificent scenes decorated with trees but made completely by hand. Some marvelous gardens, and we could see clips of films by Iri Trinka. There were also other animation filmmakers like Carol Zeman. A few years ago, before coming to LAC, when I worked in children's literature, I met the illustrator Ludmila Zeman. I told her about Expo and everything, and she told me that when she was a little girl, she worked for her father and made some of the puppets that were displayed at Expo 67. So last year, I acquired some drawings by Mrs. Zeman, and it was like I had come full circle with Mrs. Zeman, who had participated in Expo when she was still in the Czech Republic, and then she immigrated to Canada. Some of her drawings are now in our collection. It's something that really touched me and stayed in my memory. What are the next steps for the Expo Fonds? Well, we're, the work isn't finished. And um, I'm not sure that I'll live to see it finished. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the sense that there's, you always need to be able to monitor your collection and to make sure that it's in a good condition. Um, but we will be needing to further the digitization, further working on the architectural drawings, further working on the um, textual records, describing the records better, finding better access points, just improving it and um, so that we're meeting the research demand and also the long balancing that with long-term preservation. Um, you know, as I said, you can't always pick, you know, or you can't always do everything, so you have to pick, you know, what is what you can make a difference with or not. And sometimes you come across these collections that are highly used. And you see what happens with the handling, the repeated handling over and over again. And when you find that and you know it's significant, you have to act. And you have to say, hmm, there may be a digitization project here. Or we need to do something so that these records will survive another 50, 100, or however many years. So you have to you be strategic in your job. And that's what Expo has done for me, is help me be strategic. Oh, what a fun fall. Well, you know, it is actually. Yeah. And it, it sort of reminds me of why it is that I really like being an archivist. And I get to work with people who, I mean, I'm the lead archivist. I'm the portfolio archivist. But it doesn't mean... And my specialty is I'm a government records archivist, and I deal mainly with textual records, be they be in a paper or electronic format. Um, I work with government departments, um, and I have limited, or I would say maybe not now as limited as I once was, but I don't have the same kind of expertise as my special media colleagues. And so to be able to work as a team 
is very, very important. And because I can't do it all myself. And this project has really shown me that the value of working with my colleagues and how much we have in terms of incredible knowledge within this institution. And when we work together to, with a common goal of making our records accessible and preserving them, we do wonderful things. No, you are, you do have a wonderful team. You have photo archivists, you have cartograph, uh, cartography archivists, you have architectural archivists who also know maps a little bit, a little bit or a lot. But it is, it is a, a, a project that takes a whole team of experts in order to make it properly accessible to the Canadian public. And it is not just the special media archivists. I rely on our uh, archival assistants mm -hmm. to help with um, uploading um, the descriptions into our, uh, our database. accessible database. For, and I rely on you know the digitization team to tell me what they're doing. They rely on me. So it's like in order for us to do what we need to do, then we have to work together and, and you know consider what is best in the long term for this collection. And make sure we get to the 75th anniversary of Expo. Absolutely. about the Expo 67 Fawcett Library and Archives Canada, please visit us online at bac-lac.gc.ca. To view images associated with this podcast, you can access a direct link to our Flickr album on the episode page for this podcast. And if you like this episode, you're invited to subscribe to the podcast. You can do it through iTunes, Google Play, or the RSS feed located on our website. Thank you for being with us. I'm Geneviève Morin, your host. You've been listening to Discover Library and Archives Canada, where Canadian history, literature, and culture await you. A special thank you to our guests today, Margaret Dixon, Guy Bertion, Michel Pelletier, Normand Charbonneau, Elaine Goetz, and Josiane Polidori. Also, thanks to LAC photo archivist Emma Hamilton-Hobbs for her help in this episode's Flickr gallery. This episode was produced and engineered by David Knox, with assistance from Paula Keelstra. For more information on our podcasts, or if you have questions, comments, or suggestions, please visit us at bac-lac.gc.ca slash podcasts. Your Excellency, the Governor-General, Mr. Commissioner-General, and all the Expo workers, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. The sky is blue, sun is shining, it's a great day. Le jour qui marque une grande occasion to Montréal, le Québec et le Canada tout entier peuvent être fiers, très, très fiers. The heading of an article about Expo in a recent issue of an American magazine referred to it as the Big Blast Up North. Certainly Expo is going to be that, and much more. Behind this big Canadian birthday blast are achievements in planning, in organization, and in construction that are a little, that are a little short of miraculous. The men behind these achievements should be very proud and very happy today, and we should be grateful to them, especially as we recall the skeptics who once said that Expo 67 was too big a project for Montreal or Quebec or for Canada to accomplish in less than four years. It was done. It was well done. And we are witnesses today to the fulfillment of one of the most daring acts of faith in Canadian enterprise and ability ever undertaken. That faith was not misplaced. (Applause) 
and faith in our country need never be misplaced. But Expo is much more than a great Canadian achievement of design and planning and construction. It's a monument to man. It tells the exciting and inspiring story of a world that belongs not to any one nation, but to every nation. Expo shows that genius knows no boundary, beauty knows no race, and achievement speaks in no single language. No theme could have been more fitting then for our times than man and his world. Here in Expo, we have one of the most impressive collection of man's works and man's ideas ever brought together. With 62 countries, a record number, contributing of their skill and their artistry to the exciting result that has been achieved. Aujourd'hui, nous rendons hommage à tous ces hommes et à toutes ces femmes dont le dévouement et la ténacité ont rendu possible tout ce que nous voyons ici. La ville de Montréal a démontré qu'elle pouvait réaliser une telle entreprise et son maire l'a dirigée avec la clairvoyance et le dynamisme si essentiel à son succès.